Good evening. I'm with you for two hours this evening and we'll look as the last insurgent is knocked out of the Conservative leadership race. Are you inspired by the choice of three to the left? Because I'm certainly not. I need a bit of convincing. We'll have a reporter down in the east end of London where there is a very, very unpleasant fire taking place. Many fires breaking out all over the country as the temperature hits 104 degrees Fahrenheit in some parts of the country. We'll look at net zero targets not being achieved. Can we afford them? Are they possible? We'll talk about the rise of women's sport and much, much else in the next two hours. Good evening. Yes, it's been over 100 degrees Fahrenheit today, although we tend to talk just in centigrade these days. There are fires breaking out. We'll have reporters live at the scene of the biggest fire down in East London. But I must begin talking about the Conservative leadership contest, because today saw Kemi Badnock knocked out of the contest. Now, I think that was pretty accurately predicted on this programme last night, but with her departure, the last insurgent in this race has gone. The last person with any fresh ideas. The last candidate who actually sought in some way to be a reformer. She's gone. And now it is the choice. And we'll find out tomorrow who the last two are. But now it's the choice of Penny Morden, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. And whilst there are differences between the three of them, not one of them is actually a reformer. Seems to me, and I'm going to you know, stick with what I said last night, seems to me that Liz Truss will make the last two, and barring any disasters in the next six weeks, that Liz Truss will be our next Prime Minister. Now, you know, I can completely forgive her for being a Liberal Democrat when she was young, for wanting to get rid of the Queen. I can forgive all of that, because as we get older, our views adapt and they change. But she did vote Remain. We're told it's OK. Don't worry about it. She now accepts Brexit and wants to make a success of it. Haven't we heard that before? Didn't we hear that about Theresa May back in 2016? And just look how that turned out. I have to say, I thought Suella Braverman and Badenoch, I thought they actually injected into this leadership contest some interesting ideas and debates around whether we should be part of ECHR, for example, about the way our kids are being taught, or should I say poisoned, in our schools and indeed young adults in our universities. But now we've got three establishment candidates and it feels to me like we're going back to pre-Brexit politics. And what upsets me is that Brexit wasn't just about leaving the European Union. It was a hope, a screaming desire for a new kind of politics, and it just isn't happening. So let me ask you, are you inspired by the last three people in this race? Let me know your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. Because I've got to tell you, I am not. Who would I vote for if I was a Tory MP? I just don't know. I'd probably abstain. I don't believe in any of them. Perhaps I'm being mean and unfair. Maybe the weather has got to me. I don't know. I'm joined, of course, by our... Surprise, mean and unfair. Well, I've always <laughs> tried to be charitable, Darren. Darren McCaffrey joins us. Darren, we gamed this last night. Mm -hmm. We could see that Kemi Badnock had fought an amazing campaign. Indeed, yeah, a very impressive campaign, as you say. A couple of weeks ago, frankly, not many Conservative members had really heard who she was. She'd come up with some kind of fresh ideas, someone who had the backing of some senior Conservatives, Michael Gove, whenever you think of his politics, 
can spot talent, I would suggest, and he uh, uh, give his fulsome support to her. And yes, there was that sense that she actually led quite an impressive campaign that got going, that signed up 60 Conservative MPs off the bat. I think there's little doubt, whatever happens, whoever wins, you know, Kemi Badenoch will be in a cabinet. I saw someone today suggest yeah. she could be a future Home Secretary, and I would not rule that out. So we've got her 59 votes, and they're going to be reallocated. Difficult to see. If you voted for Badenoch, and if you're if you're worried about political correctness, uh, you can't vote for Penny Morden, can you? Well, so this is the weird thing. So I think what's really important is looking at the numbers today. So Liz Truss went up 15. Yep. Penny Morden went up 10 MPs. This is from Tom Tugendhat's numbers from yesterday. Mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak went up three. Now, there are lots of rumours and you know, suggestions at Westminster. There's a bit of politics, unsurprisingly, uh, played some here. Some games being played. Some games being played. Why would Tom Tugendhat's supporters switch to Liz Truss? Seems a little odd. Suggestions that Rishi Sunak may have said, actually, you know what, some of my supporters go and vote for Liz because he would rather be in the final two with Liz Truss rather than Benny Morton. We don't know if they're definite, but it seems quite plausible, <laughs> all I would suggest. With Kimmy Badenoch, it's really fascinating. Where would her votes go? You would think, naturally, in some ways, they go to Liz Truss. They're yeah. both on the right of the party. You know, they've made kind of big things about these kind of cultural war issues. But in saying that, Kimmy's been on the same page as Rishi Sunak when it comes to economics. But actually, you watch the debate on Thursday night, there's a whole swathe of them in which they were agreeing with each other. So in the end, I think um, what will happen is that this will obviously get Rishi over the line. There's little doubt about that. I think he will be in the final yeah. two. But yes, I think more of those MPs will gravitate towards Liz Truss, not to Penny Morden. And that's where she will struggle to get to that 120 figure. And we will see, I think, almost certainly now a contest between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. We're going to find that out for definite on Wednesday afternoon. And yeah, the first TV does, debate. Does this all happen? So, uh, four o'clock tomorrow. So, voting's between one and three. Yep. Uh, then there's always an hour to count the votes. 4 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. If there is a tie, it is numerically possible. Yep. There's a tie. Yep. Uh, there will then be another immediate runoff between the final three. And then the next kind of signpost of this big debate on Monday night, in which the two will battle it out. Because, of course, it moves from here in Westminster, and MPs go on their summer holidays on Thursday, to the Conservative membership. And really interestingly, today we saw a poll where Rishi Sinek's not doing very well at all no, amongst the membership, no. where in every battle with the final four, he would have lost, and he would have lost to Liz Truss. If that's where it ends oh, up. Oh, it's Liz Truss, Prime Minister. I'm convinced of it. So, unless, she, unless she has a disastrous campaign. Well, so, so the only two things that I would say were Rishi Sunak's campaign are hoping what will happen is that the more Conservative members get exposed to Liz Truss, the more they may start to equate her to Theresa May in terms of the fact that she's not terribly charismatic and maybe a little wooden, some would suggest. And second of all, all the other candidates, or the ones left, have been through the mill of politics, as we like to say. They've had mud chucked at them, some somewhat legitimately so, some yeah. suggest illegitimately so, but they've been through that. They've been through the scandals. We saw the briefings over the weekend and the last 10 days against Benny Morden. We know Rishi Sunak went through it with his tax arrangements or his wife's tax arrangements earlier on this year. Liz Truss has not done that. And again, it's sometimes quite difficult to gauge in the heat of a campaign uh, how much that can do. And I, I would reference back to, of course, Andrew Ledson, who was making severe inroads yeah. in Theresa May in 2016, and yet she fell halfway through that campaign. It is always possible. So, yes, if you look at the polls at the moment, you look at the support for Liz Truss within the Conservative membership, you'd have to conclude she is now favourite, and she is with the bookies, it must be said, as well. But 
politics is a dangerous, unpredictable game. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, Darren. Thank you. And you're quite right. Andrea Leadsom, one weekend of tough headlines and she was gone. Goodness me. I thought to myself at the time, I've been going through years of them, but I'm still here to tell the tale. I think it's Liz Truss, Prime Minister, on the 5th of September, but we will see. Now, a major incident has been declared across London after a huge surge in fires. Uh, the worst of these is out in East London, uh, very, very near Dartford, uh, at a place called Wennington. But there are fires all over London, all over the country. Don't be too alarmed. You know, we do get fires during hot, dry summers. But today was the hottest day that's been recorded. 29 places recording the highest ever new temperature, 40.3 degrees centigrade at RAF Coningsby, 104.5 in Fahrenheit. So it's been a very hot day. It's not surprising there are fires, but Wellington looks to have been the worst uh, with by the looks of it, houses and other outbuildings destroyed. And Steve Dudney, fire resilience consultant, former London Fire Brigade Borough Commander and author of London Firefighter, joins me. Steve, good evening. Welcome to the programme. I guess with the weather we've had, and particularly with the breeze we've had today, I guess in some ways what we've had is not that surprising. No, good evening, Nigel. Um, it's... Uh, it's it's unprecedented in terms of the fire spreading to property. That is, that's been unknown. I mean, we've had a number of very hot, dry summers. Everyone talks about the summer of 1976. Certainly in my career, that was from 1987 to and we've got to remember that's a lot often a lot worse outside of London. But in London, you've got so many properties up close to parks. This is the first time in my experience that we've had a severe grass fire that's actually burnt up to the houses. And if you've seen the photographs, Wennington Fire Station itself, from some of the aerial photographs, has been surrounded by that fire. Fortunately, the grass bit of Wennington Fire Station, which is the farthest east fire station in London, just on the border with Essex County. It, it burnt into the yard of the fire station, but fortunately, because it's got a concrete yard, it didn't spread. But it, it's, it's, it's not unusual. All firefighters are trained in, in wild, wildland firefighters, and even London firefighters. There's national occupational guidance that, that um, teaches firefighters how to deal with that. But this, is, this has been most unusual today, in my experience, to actually have a fire that spreads through gardens and actually into houses. I haven't known that in all of my career. And I've, you know, as a, as a senior officer later in my career, I attended in summer period, I attended some quite major grass fires, including one that attracted 40 fire engines in um, on Wanstead Flats in 2018. Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember, I mean, you know, 1976, I remember very well. Um, lots and lots of fires all over the country. But as you say, unusual, mercifully in this country, that houses should be affected in this way. I have to ask you, Steve, are the fire brigade, uh, the fire services, as they are today, are they ready to cope with this sort of thing? They are, they're ready in terms of training. Uh, in terms of resources, fire brigades over the last decade or so have got a lot smaller. You know, London Fire Brigade at the moment, because of staff shortages, 
have got lots of, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm four years retired. But from what I hear, that generally there's in the region of 25 to 30 appliances that are not available on a daily basis. And what's unusual today is all of, all of the surrounding counties, so Essex, Kent, Surrey, Hertfordshire, are all very busy. So there isn't a lot of resilience in terms of calling in uh, additional additional appliances from... I mean, usually it's London crews that might go over the border to assist the counties. London is one of the biggest fire brigades in the okay. world, in fact. It's about the fourth biggest fire brigade in, in, in the whole world with, uh, with 103 fire stations. But it is a lot, it's a lot different to how it was. Certainly in, in 95, which is within my experience, we were very busy with grass fires, but we never seemed to run out of fire engines quite as much as you do. But in terms of the crews, their actual training and resilience, the equipment the fire brigade have got available now is much better than there was available um, certainly 25 years ago in the mid-90s and before my time in the 1970s, where it was very rudimentary. You know, there's, there's brilliant equipment available now. The fire appliances have got much more efficient pumps. Um, there's water backpacks. Uh, they've got drones, although don't do firefighting, can certainly give you an overview of the spread of the fire line and all of that. So they're prepared, but we've seen uh, we've seen massive cuts to the fire brigade, uh, and that is the issue, Nigel, I feel. OK, Steve Dudney, a bit of a mixed picture there. Um, yeah, better equipped, but fewer of them. Thank you for coming and joining us and sharing your experience with us here on GB News. No. Now we can go now straight to Wennington live and join GB News's Joe Casper, who is there at the scene. Joe, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Yeah, I'm just about half a mile away from uh, where the fire is. The police are, won't allow anyone going any further than that. Um, I believe there's about 15 fire engines that have turned up today, about 100 firefighters fighting the fire, which started at about 1 p.m. Uh, this afternoon. They're still fighting it. Um, I've been talking to local residents uh, about this, including uh, Frank, who lives about uh, just by where the cordon is, about half a mile away. Um, could you tell us what you saw today? Well, we were sitting in the lounge and looked out the window. We saw massive black smoke going into the sky. We dashed upstairs to look out the bedroom window and we could see it was in the village, uh, Wennington village or near it. Um, but it turns out it was a few cottages this side of it. And we're about just over half a mile from it. And it was scary, the amount of flames and smoke. What, what, what was the smoke like from where you Black. could see? Black. Black. Yeah. And um, have, have you been speaking to people that are sort of living in the village? And No, only neighbours along here, obviously. Mm. All... And about, about what time did you, uh, did you notice it? Oh, God. Not sure. It was oh, two or three hours ago, or more, maybe. Mm. Three or four hours, maybe. And what's the temperature been like here today yeah. for you? Sweltering, sweltering, absolutely. Well, I've got a, a temperature gauge in the garden and it's about mid-30s. Thir mid and, and Wennington's not a very big... No, uh, it's a village. It's a village, about, about yeah. 300 people living there. Maybe not that. There's just one little church and that's it. And I believe uh, a number of animals have been evacuated, horses. Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of... Um, animals in the area, horses obviously. It's all farmland all, all along. From here to Wellington, it's 90% farmland.
farmland. And, and from what I've gathered from reports, uh, it's been very dry here recently, lots of grassland, and that sort of just encouraged the spread of the fire. A bit, oh, yeah. bit, bit windy yeah. as well. I mean, just just to the back of these houses where we live, about half a mile again is the River Thames. And that's all scrubland between the railway, which runs along there, the C2C line, uh, down to the Thames. It's dry as hell. It could easily go across there, which is scary. Great, thank you very much. Um, thank you for that, Nigel. Um, we're, like I said, police won't let anyone pass here. Um, apparently, uh, when uh, some of the residents that have been living there have been have black smoke all over their chest. Uh, when we when we started driving, uh, myself and the cameraman, uh, there was thick black smoke for about seven miles long. Uh, Joe, my cameraman, he actually called the, the scene spooky. Uh, that's how bad it was. Uh, so it's it's pretty bad here. So I asked you earlier, are you inspired by the three candidates left in the Tory leadership contest? Because I'm not. Stuart says, no, not at all. There is no real choice between them. Well, they'd argue differently, particularly on tax, where Liz Truss is talking about big cuts. Karen says, no, definitely don't want Rishi. Uh, Tristan says, completely underwhelmed, the country needs Nigel. Oh, it's very sweet of you, but it's just not going to happen. They wouldn't even let me in the Conservative Party, let alone run to be leader. And Deborah says, get rid of the lot. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, this is not catching the mood of the country. Now, a story that I've been following for a few weeks, almost with incredulity, have been a series of farmers' protests that have been taking place in the Netherlands. And it's received, to be honest, very very little coverage in this country. But, just get a handle on this. Under environmental policy, and this is to reduce particularly nitrogen levels, not CO2 for once, but nitrogen levels, the Dutch government are calling for a 30% reduction in livestock numbers. And it seems truly incredible. I didn't know that the Netherlands, and it's quite a small country with 17 million people, but it's got 4 million cattle, 13 million pigs, 104 million chickens, and it is Europe's biggest meat exporter. So we're talking about a significant and important agricultural sector, uh, and a third of it in livestock, apparently is going to be closed down in the name of saving the planet. But it isn't just in the Netherlands this is happening, because now similar demands are being made in Germany, Italy, Poland, Spain, and even in Switzerland. There have been some farmers very, very concerned. Now, there have been some quite considerable protests taking place across the Netherlands, and I thought this story really was worth bringing to you. So I'm joined now by Eric Luton, Dutch Farmers Union spokesman. Eric, good evening. Welcome to the programme. Um, I... Good evening, too. So good are they too. literally... Good evening. Are they literally telling you that you've got to get rid of a third of livestock farming in the Netherlands? No, 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 they don't tell it in that uh, direction. They, they tell we have to save the, the nature and therefore we have to reduce the ammonia. It's a, a sort of uh, nitrogen. And when we have to reduce it, well, then the, the several farms have to shut down because they are too close to nature and they have to reduce not only 30%, they have to reduce up to 95%. So that's impossible. So there are farmers who are literally living there for centuries yeah, by, in the family, uh, always working with nature. And all of a sudden now they have to disappear because of, of this ammonia. And 
Well, the farmers uh, are not against nature, never against nature. They have to live in nature and they uh, have to work with nature. Um, but it's unbelievable that uh, all of a sudden now they have to uh, get away uh, so close to nature. And farmers are not convinced that it is going to help nature. That's, that's the big point. Eric, is this something that is being done by a series of European countries individually? Is it something being done by European Union directives? You know, how and why has this initiative well, taken place? Well, uh, Europe says uh, you have to uh, preserve nature, nature, uh, especially nature 2000 areas, they have to be preserved by the government. The government has to make uh, measures to uh, preserve it. Where it went wrong is that the Dutch government only made nitrogen, oxygen and ammonia as the only one uh, element uh, which will uh, tell you if nature is well preserved. And that's absolutely crazy because there are far more other uh, parts who are important. For example, uh, hydrological uh, waste is very much more important. I have an area here close, close by, also Nature 2000 area. There are growing plants who should not be grown there by the models who are made by uh, the government, but still they are growing there. So there is a, a, a big difference in what do you see in the fields and in these areas, and what does, does the models tell you uh, what what there are uh, what there is, and that's that's big big of bigger problem. Uh, there are more countries, but the only way. The Netherlands have uh, uh, made it in this direction, what the, what the European measures were, were, were told to do. Well, that's, that's different. So, uh, for example, I live close to the German border, uh, also a nature area. Yeah. It's uh, over the border also. On the, the Dutch side, uh, farmers have to leave their farms. On the other side, in Germany, they can build uh, farms close to this area. Uh, Dutch farmers are uh, mad about this, of course. No, I can see, and the protests have been prolonged, uh, and they really are uh, quite on, on a huge scale. I expect the French farmers and smallholders to protest. I never thought we'd see it in the Netherlands. Eric, thank you for joining us and explaining what is going on there. Well, I'm joined now by Andrew Meredith, editor of Farmers Weekly. As I said, you know, the French farmers always protest, and smallholders particularly. This is astonishing. I mean, what he's saying here is that the European Union's Natura 2000 project says that because of all these livestock, there's too much ammonia, too much nitrate going into the soil and therefore big cuts to basically the meat production. I mean, that's what we're really talking about here. And I, I've, I've railed on this show about the fact that we're not producing our own energy anymore in the neighbour saving the planet, and now we're not going to produce much of our own food. Now, we are, of course, outside of the common agricultural policy with Brexit. We haven't quite worked out. I don't think what our... Well, we're beginning. We're on the way. Yeah, we're beginning to work out our farming policy, and which is a good thing. Uh, what do you make of what's going on? Well, uh, I think, first of all, the important thing to say is if meat consumption is not falling, then if we cut meat production here or in the Netherlands, 
consumers would expect that product to come from somewhere else. And what British farmers would tell you if they were sat here now is that they have some of the highest production standards in the world. So it seems perverse to move that production overseas to somewhere with a lower standard, meaning that we can't, you know, have our own food security and we're also so not benefiting the environment meat, globally. We'd import meat from Brazil or from chicken from Thailand or whatever it may be. Yes, and we're not self-sufficient in all those products now, but it would mean the proportion of that would go up. And a farmer would rightly say, is the environmental net benefit actually happened here? Or are you just punishing British farmers without having that tough conversation with the public? You know, if they really believe this, they need to say, you need to start eating less meat and people to actually buy into that. But until that happens, I think, you know, farmers will be happy to be led by the consumer but being pushed into it by government is harder to take. So is this an EU revolt? Do, and are you worried that this kind of thing is going to happen to British farmers or not? I think as you touched on there with the, it does come down to attitude. You know, the French farmers, you know, they are quick out onto the streets to, to wave a placard. It's exactly 20 years since the last significant British farm protest. And that was in the dairy sector over perpetually low milk prices. And, and we've seen some reform in the supply chain there. And there's more to do, I'm sure, that uh, the farming lobbies would say to re, still rebalance it in terms of of fairness but are we going to see farmers on the streets in the short term over here i don't think so but everyone's got a breaking point at the last conservative conference boris johnson said we're going to rewild 30 percent of the english countryside it was a, a build back better conference and he said build back beaver and now we hear that bison are being introduced into woodlands near canterbury in kent uh, has the ukraine crisis have worries about food security is rewilding now finished? Are we having a more sensible look at all of this? Look, it's up to individual landowners what they do with their land as long as it's sure. within the bounds of the law. And if somebody wants to, you know, take up a great amount of charity money or their own private money and put in bison, good luck to them. I think that there has definitely been a renewed appreciation of the value of, of mm. not self-sufficiency, but certainly improved food security. And the government has committed in the last couple of months to at least maintaining where we are in terms of food production of what we can produce here in the UK. But they've not really put that in legislation. They've not put, attached any funding to that. So at that moment, it is just a verbal commitment. And of course, you know, with everything that's going on in Westminster, who knows yeah. the future direction? Well, we have a new Prime Minister coming. <laughs> we have a new sense of priorities. Andrew Meredith, thank you for joining us on this programme. Come back and see us again. I think we need to debate a lot more, actually, about British farming, food production, and I think food security too. Thank you. A couple of what the Farage moments uh, that have amused me today hugely. One is the Police and Crime Commissioner for Nottinghamshire, and she's a Conservative, Caroline Henry. Now, she was elected pledging to crack down on speeding, and she's now been given a six-month driving ban, having been caught breaking the limit five times in just 12 weeks. And, you know, I can forgive people for speeding in certain circumstances, but what the great British public can never forgive is what they see as outright rank hypocrisy. So not very pretty, not very clever. Now, this one is quite something. This is a real what the Farage moment. It's coming to Mars bars. First, it happened to cigarette packets. And I remember being in the European Parliament in 2001 when it was proposed 
that up to 60% of cigarette packets should be health warnings. And I spoke in that debate and said, yes, I'd go along, I mean, very tongue-in-cheek, said, yes, I'd go along with this legislation, provided 60% of new Mercedes-Benz showed pictures of people who'd been injured or killed in car crashes. This, of course, did not receive a great reception in the European Parliament, but then nothing I ever said there did. Well, I shouldn't have been so tongue-in-cheek, because now the proposal is that it comes, and it's at a Cambridge University proposal. And the idea is that Galaxy, Mars bars, Dairy Milk, Snickers, all of them should have graphic labels on the side of the packages saying this product gives you a higher risk of heart disease, obesity and cancer from eating excess calories. There is nowhere we can go in our lives where we are to be freed from big government telling us what we can and what we can't do. Threatening us, warning us, bullying us, and goodness me, hasn't it happened over the course of the last couple of days? Sunday was fine. You could all go out on Sunday, go to the park, go to the beach, do as you wish, but Monday and Tuesday are killer days and most people haven't gone to work and they're at home. And I find it amazing when millions of people every year Go to Spain, go to Portugal for a fortnight. The classic image of the British male tourist, stripped to the waist, slightly sunburnt, with a can of lager in the hand. It's fine in Spain when it's 40 degrees, but it's life-threatening when it's here. I simply can't believe it. Some more reaction from you at home to this question I posed. Are you inspired by the last three people that are in the Conservative leadership race? One viewer says, the whole process has been farcical, but now we are nearing the end. We want total fairness, no devious trickery or trade-offs. Are you having a laugh? That's how politics has been done going back to ancient times. The membership must have the final say on who is elected. Well, they will, the membership will, but, but there'll be all sorts of backroom deals going on over the course of the next 24 hours. Neil says, I was until Kemi went. And I think that's right. I think Kemi Badenoch brought something quite extraordinary to that race. Who would have believed a fortnight ago that this woman would actually be in you know, competition to be our next Prime Minister? And she did it through strength of conviction. She did it through originality of ideas. She did it actually by daring to challenge some of the things that are accepted. Some of the things, because, oh, it's too difficult. We can't talk about that. Well, she did, and good for her. And I, I think she's got actually a glittering political future. I genuinely do. Ryan says, I've seen flat pack instructions more inspiring than this contest. And Thomas says, I'm not impressed with these final three at all. I wanted Kemi. Truss is too awkward when she's speaking, and I don't trust her. And that's going to be Truss's big problem. She's not a natural performer. Now, talking of performance, let's move to sport. I'm joined by Victoria Rush. No woman, no try. Rugby, this is, you've know, played rugby, you're supporting rugby, you've made a film about rugby. 
Why rugby, Victoria? Why rugby? What inspired you to get involved in rugby? I think the first time I really got involved with rugby was probably my dad. Um, he loved it. He loved kind of shouting at the TV and supporting the boys. Um, but when I got to kind of playing age, it wasn't available for girls. And I didn't find my first female rugby team until I was 19 years old when I got to university. Um, but I'll say that I just found a safe space for somebody who's maybe a little bit more physical in sport um, and wasn't as good at the traditional women's sports that I was given at school. So when I found a sport like rugby where um, I... Cheers, by the way. Cheers. A welcome to the prayer. <laughs> <laughs> um, where I had a community of people who had the same kind of approach to sport as I did. It, uh, I never went back, safe to say. And, and tell us about this film, No Woman, No Try. Is this, is this to attempt to popularise female rugby? Um, it was an attempt to put female rugby players in the spotlight, I think is something that we don't get very often. Women's football, as you see it now during the Euros, is getting a great spotlight. And they're getting big crowds. Yeah, they are. There's 460,000 tickets, I think, they're sold. The biggest ever women's Euros. Would you have believed that five or ten years ago? Five or ten years ago, no, but only because I didn't see women's sport as a professional opportunity, where it is now the next generation of girls growing up can see sport as a professional choice for them. Rugby, yes. I think, is not quite there yet, but hopefully Well, you say that, soon. but is, is it true we're the only country in the world to have a female rugby union? A, a league for the women's team? Yeah. yeah, yeah, the club league. So we're it's, way ahead of others are. in some we ways. We are way ahead. So it's not all bad. <laughs> the Red Roses <laughs> are going to the World Cup this year, and well, in my personal opinion, they'll be, they're, they're front runners. but I think most people who, who know anything about the women's game would agree, because of the league that we have, because of the setup we have here, uh, we're definitely the best team in the world. So there's an option now to be a professional female rugby player? Just about. There's only 28 professional female rugby players in England. Yeah, at the you moment. see, I mean, men's rugby didn't go professional till what, the late 80s, early 90s? 90s yep. Comparatively recently, and actually for the first few years, it was very difficult for many men yeah. to earn a living playing rugby. But do you see this growing? Definitely, the RFU have pledged 222 million to the women's game over the next 10 years. That inherently will create professional sport for women's rugby, and hopefully, we'll see many more. Um, of the, the best players on TV, not just during the games, but in films, um, in other types of content. And that's really, I think, how we grow the game. So we've got women's rugby, we've got obviously the football at the moment, which yeah. is very much in the news, the cricket, uh, women's cricket. And, you know, I mean, let's be, let's be honest, the women's female team has been a lot better than the men's team over the course of the last few years. Although, although this season, English male cricket has picked up <laughs> hugely. Do you think there's a public out there that feel that maybe women's sports being sort of pushed upon them, whether they want it or not? Or do you think people are genuinely warming to it? Um, I think you could say that about men's sports, surely. It's pushed upon all of us to watch it. Because we've and grown we don't up have the it. option we've to grown watch up women, with women's yeah, sport, yeah, exactly. Right. But um, I think the audience is out there. I just don't think we've ever given them a product to be able to prove that the audience is there. Some people want to watch it, some people don't. And that's okay. You don't have to watch women's sport. I don't have to watch men's sport. I don't particularly like men's football. I do like women's football. What's wrong with men's football? Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Are we this, this is a very <laughs> anti-male stance you're it's taking. It's definitely here. not. No, I love men's rugby. I, I enjoy watching cricket. I'm not a massive fan of men's football. And I think that's got a lot to do with the, the lack of respect I feel I see in the game towards like referees, like, fans towards players. Um, I just think women's sports are safer space for families, for fans, for players. Um, so that's, that's A safer space? What does that mean? Well, I went to the women's Euros opening game. 
There were families, kids, a lot more women I think I've ever seen at a men's football match. Um, and I just think it is a safer environment to have a because different audience. Because men's football is quite tribal. It can be. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't think you'd see as many kids at a men's football match as you would have seen it as a women's football match. And that's a different audience. Doesn't mean to say it has to change. I'm not saying you have to change the men's game, but for, for brands, for businesses, for growth, it's a totally different audience and a totally different market. There's nothing wrong with that. When it comes, I mean, you know, we all know with sport and there have been dramatic changes in terms of, you know, what, I'm talking about, talking about the male game to begin with. But when you look at cricketers, for example, what they can now earn, they can go off, the really top ones can go to India, yeah. to the IPL, and make very, very big money. Even test cricketers earn a pretty good living. They didn't used to. You know, it wasn't a very well-paid game. Footballers, I mean, goodness me, uh, you know, I've had a few well-known footballers on this show, you know, who were Premier League players in the early days of the Premier League and big names in English football, but they were earning, I mean, literally a fraction of what these footballers are earning today. So I guess in the end, it's all about TV rights, isn't it? In the end, that's where the big funding for sport comes from. You know, we pay to watch sport. You know, we, we subscribe to various commercial sports channels or we pay to watch a boxing match or we pay to watch the Open Golf Championship at the weekend or whatever it may be. And I've heard, certainly around tennis, but I think the principle applies through all sports. I've heard the argument made by proponents of female sport that it's unfair that women aren't paid the same as the men. Is it unfair? I think that's a big question. I think it depends. I don't think it necessarily should be the same, but it should be equal for working, for the work that they're doing. So, I, I mean, I think we all probably agree men's football is paid an obscene amount it of money, crackers. right? It, it's yeah. ridiculous. You almost can't spend that much money. You can try, at least. Well, I think I'm sure, I, yeah, I they're, think, they're all giving it I a go. I think they do, definitely. Yeah. But um, the, the, some of the women even playing in London teams are, are, can be paid, what, twenty to £30,000 a year. That's realistically barely a living wage in London. Hmm. Um, so if you want to call it being paid equally rather than being paid but isn't it a, the but same. It, but isn't it about market forces? I mean, isn't the truth of it, if, and it may happen, you know, oh, maybe this World well. Cup, maybe sorry, this, this, this European Championship, maybe this is the beginning in terms of football, yeah. it may come to rugby and cricket and who knows, but isn't it in the end about market forces? You know, if more people are prepared, you know, to spend their subscriptions on sport yeah. and to click on to women's sport, they will then earn the same as the men. I'm sure, yeah. We shouldn't force this, should we? No, you shouldn't, but you need to create a product for people to watch it for them to then earn the money, right? If we're not putting it on TV, we're not putting it on all these different channels. It's not easy to find, actually, How is it? It's really hard to no, find. No, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate yeah, you on are, this. Uh, you know, and I, yes, if I, I've been... You know, I do subscribe to Sky Sports. I can't help it because I know I'm a sports nut and I love watching sport and I love the Open at the weekend and I mean, I'll watch all sports that are on. But yeah, you certainly wouldn't flicking through the Sky channels kind of automatically. So until um, you can find it, until you normalise seeing it, it's not going to be watched, there's not going to be an audience, and then you get stuck in this cycle of you can't watch it, there's no audience, there's no money in it. Once you can watch it, it'll get better, there'll be more money in it, it'll get even better, and that cycle mm. will improve upwards. I think if, until we're making it available, the rugby's been on the BBC, and it's been on the TV, and it's been free to air TV, that's a huge change. You can now watch women's rugby, whereas yeah. you couldn't really before. Well, you'd have to you really struggle. Yeah, I mean, this is another big debate, isn't it? What's free to wear and what you have to pay for, and... 
I do regret that cricket, of course, is all behind a paywall because the way the England team have played this summer, the millions would have watched it. But I was very, the one comment you made that really interested me because you know, here you are, you took up rugby, you love the game, you're an enthusiast, you're, you're out there promoting women's sport as a whole, but rugby in particular. Oh, I get that, and, and I love the enthusiasm for that. But there's one comment you made earlier that really interested me. You said that when you were at school, you were directed to what was thought to be sports for girls, basically. Definitely. What did you just explain what you meant by that? Well, I played hockey, netball, and rounders. I mean, I believe rounders have been taken off the curriculum for girls now anyway, because there is no pathway, and they do play cricket, which is fantastic, and that'll be a huge growth for cricket later. But and hockey's a great game. Hockey's a great game, um, and the boys were allowed to play it when we got a little bit older, but the girls weren't allowed to play rugby or football. They weren't given the same options um, to play a different type of sport that's inherently not necessarily seen as a female-only sport. Um, and so I lost what was what 15 years compared to my male counterpart by the time I was 18 and started playing he's probably been playing since he was three So do we need five. to encourage girls to play sport more? Different types of sport definitely. Boxing? Yes why not? <laughs> well a lot of people of course don't like sports like that. Not true. So you think there is a difference is that fair or unfair? There's a difference. But how many young women would really want to play rugby or would really want to box? How do you know until you're given the option? And is it closed off to them? Well, it what definitely was for me, and it's certainly not as easily available as things like hockey, netball, um, cricket, as it's on the curriculum. Rugby's not and on the and curriculum. And cricket's a big change, isn't it? Cricket's a huge change, and I think a great change. And what I'd about love to play cricket. And what about the differences between, because I've, I've discussed this with other sports people that have been on this show, both male and female, you know, people who have been Olympic, performers and, 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 and whatever. One of the things that I see with sport, and, this, and I don't know whether it's as relevant with girls as it is with boys, but I'm sure it is, is the 7% of kids that go to the private schools have the best coaching, the best facilities, the most encouragement, and not all, but too many, who are being educated in the state sector are not getting proper access to sport. Yeah, agreed. Rugby's definitely got that problem. If you don't have access to grass areas with rugby posts, are you going to take up rugby or are you going to end up taking, taking up football? Um, because it was much easier to access. But is rugby, rugby a middle-class game for rich kids? It is in this country, definitely. I'd say it's probably different in other countries, but it definitely is in England. But is that sure. because we're not through comprehensive schools and elsewhere, giving people full access to It's not to as, it. ac ac as accessible and the same for women. If it's not as accessible for boys from certain backgrounds and it's not as accessible for women, how can you ever expect to get mm. those boys in the men's game and those women in the women's game? No, I was very struck, you know, the London Olympics, which was a tremendous success. Huge. And when you looked at the medal tallies, um, by the way, John Major didn't get much right in life, but I do think lottery money going towards sport development yeah. and academies really did make a difference, a huge difference. Uh, so we're credited with that. If nothing else, <laughs> we're credited with that. But it was interesting, if you looked at that Olympics and the one afterwards, that 60% of our gold medal winners, male and female, had been privately educated. Yeah. And I feel there is a big class divide in terms of sport and opportunity, and I'd love to see that levelled up. And Victoria, if with your enthusiasm, energy and desire for male and female sport to be equal through merit, which is the only way that it can happen, and you get that fully, yeah. if you can put some pressure on the education department to make sure both boys and girls
in state schools are given those opportunities, you'll be doing a very good thing. And I thank you for sharing your enthusiasm with me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we have time for Barrage the Farage. As you know, you send your questions in. I never even get the slightest peek at them before this piece of paper is put in my hand. Let's see how we get on. The first question, one viewer asks, how long until they force us to ha oh, this is a good, oh, you better, Victoria, you better, you better stick with this one. <laughs> how long do they force us to have mixed gender sports teams, especially in football. Now, gender and sport, there's a, some huge rows around this, but this questioner is not actually talking about the trans debate as such. Do you see mixed gender sports teams coming? If they could happen, why not? If they could happen, why not, says Victoria. I, well, I would instinctively say this is a complete nonsense idea, but then, I'll be honest, I never thought we'd see women in the British Army potentially in frontline positions, and now that is something uh, that could happen. So, would it happen? I tell you what, not in a hurry, I think is the answer to that. And, and, and yeah, I think not in a hurry. Paul asks, oh, here we go, ridiculous question. I mean, I can't do advertising on this show. What is your favourite real ale? And is it the one you drink on Talking Pints? What I drink on Talking Pints varies. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what my favourite real is, but what I will say to you is this. I think that the growth and development of British beers, as opposed to lagers, British beers, a completely unique drink. You go to a London pub here in Westminster, and they might now have four, five real ales on and three or four lagers. 30, 40 years ago, you, were, you know, it was difficult to get in many pubs a decent pint. And we've seen a growth of microbreweries all over the country, and it's a great thing. It's a unique product. It's a live yeast product that we produce on draft, something we should be very proud of, and when drunk in moderation, actually pretty good for you too. Not even, not even what the most critical GP of me would condemn that comment. Stuart asks, what do you think Rees-Mogg, why do you think Rees-Mogg came out for trust two weeks ago? Does he know something the rest of us don't? Well, perhaps he thinks that Liz Truss is enormously talented and is going to be a phenomenal performer, that he's going to sweep the red wall with her charm, her wit, her humour and her eloquence. That could be the reason. Or, or more likely, Jacob, you know what, I like Jacob very much. He sat in this chair and talking pints before, even bought his own homemade cider and gosh, it was strong. Jacob is an intensely loyal person. And he will have seen what Rishi Sunak did, frankly, as being treachery. And so I think for Jacob, it's pretty much anyone, anyone but Rishi. And he sees Liz Truss as being the best reason for doing that. Right, now I am staying with you. I am staying with you for a further hour. We're going to have a look in a moment about the government's target for putting heat pumps in, home, in homes. We're not even reaching 10% of that target. So we ask the question, can we actually afford to go for net zero right now? And to ask that question on a hot day like today is, I think, pretty relevant. In the next hour, we will, of course, continue our speculation as to who makes the last two. I'm certain it's going to be Liz Truss. We'll look at what the odds and the betting markets are telling us, amongst other things. But 
The big debate we've not had thus far is about net zero. The government's targets for heat pumps aren't being met. We're not even meeting 10% of them. Is it time, despite the hot weather, to rethink net zero? That'll be the big question we debate in the course of the next hour. Well, there's no denying it, it was a hot day today. Yes, 40.3 degrees centigrade recorded at RAF Coningsby, which in old money is 104.5 degrees Fahrenheit. So a record hot day today, albeit... Just get some sense of perspective. This has been a two-day heat wave. Those of us that are of a certain age remember 1976, when we had 10 days of it being well over 30 every day, and actually, actually about 10 weeks of sustained hot weather, very, very dry. Now, you can watch, if you want to, every other news channel out there, and they will have expert after expert lining up despite the fact many of them just work for think tanks uh, and maybe have the odd degree, um, telling you this is conclusive proof, absolutely conclusive proof, that climate change is doing all of this to us. I did try last night to point out that there is a solar flare coming towards the Earth, and I did ask the question, maybe that has got something to do with it. I don't know the answer to that, but we need to have debate around these subjects. Now, the government, of course, are all out for net zero. Boris Johnson, utterly committed to it. All of the Conservative leadership candidates, utterly committed to it. For a brief period, it looked like Kemi Badenoch was going to break that trend, but in the end, even she came into line. I've tried over the last few months to open up some big debates and questions on net zero, and I have to say, I found myself shut down shut out of that debate even more than I was when I dared 30 years ago to question membership of the European Union. There are some very big vested interests here. But I am not for one moment suggesting that man's presence on Earth and its booming population is not having some kind of impact. It probably is. It's about extent and it's about scale. But when it comes to our country, Let's just get a sense of perspective. We are outputting less than 1% of global CO2. And whilst we may well want to do the right thing, frankly, compared to what happens in India and China, we are largely irrelevant. But, and my question for you, for you the audience, is, is the government's net zero target achievable? And I say this on a day when we learn that the government's plan to install 600,000 heat pumps every year in British homes is falling slightly short. Well, when I say slightly short, it looks like we installed 60,000 over the course of the last year, just 10% of the government target. And whilst there are grants available, given that it costs five, 10,000, perhaps even more pounds, to put a heat pump in a home that may not work very well when it gets cold, it's perhaps no surprise. So is it, is it a moment to rethink net zero? Not to rethink our global responsibilities. You know, I absolutely hate pollution. I can't stand plastics in the seas and all of those things. But are we going to commit economic harry-carry over eliminating CO2 whilst India and China and many others just laugh at us? But one thing you will get here on GB News despite the fact that Tony Blair's legislation 
that came in 20 years ago says that on issues such as this, because it's a settled matter, that doesn't need to be both sides of the debate. Well, and that's why you'll see on the other channels, wall to wall, you know, this is happening. Oh, these hot days, we must get used to this. Every summer's going to be like this because we drive four by fours in Chelsea. We will actually have a debate on this. And I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Lois Perry, director of Car 26, somebody that is calling for a referendum on net zero. Lois, no, welcome we to the programme. Now, Thank look, you. record temperatures, there are nearly 40 locations in the UK today mm. that have recorded record ever temperatures. Of course, those temperature records only started 120 years ago, and there is a huge span of history, including Roman warming period, medieval warming period, which were much hotter. They were growing grapes and making wine in Manchester. You know, it, it, there, there is a huge amount of scientific evidence that, that you don't ever hear because people are no platformed, they're sat from their jobs, they're just not funded. Why? Um, why? why? So why? Why? You know, you know, I mean, look, I understand what you're saying, but explain mm. to people, why is it? Because whenever the science is talked about, yeah. and Blair said the science is settled all those years ago, why is it? That, that scientist after scientist is, is lined up to say, we think CO2, rising CO2 emissions are warming the planet. It's a libertarian issue. It's no different from Brexit. The whole net zero thing is about, well, I believe, is about control. It's about controlling um, how much we travel how much, um, you know, whether we can go out, leave the house. We've had, we've had um, COVID lockdowns. Now we're looking at, in the last couple of days, the whole concept of uh, climate lockdown, i.e. it's too hot to go out. You know, there is a huge, as you said, there's a huge amount of vested interest, people that are actually... Oh, I can you know, see that. People are making money. There's, there's a, the ESG, all of the different financial instruments that have been put but in surely place. surely with nearly 8 billion of us mm. on this planet, surely we're having some impact on the environment. The thing is... As you just you correctly said, in this country, we can say we want to cut our carbon. I don't believe it has any impact on the environment whatsoever. Don't you? No, no, none. I, and I, so I, you don't accept that rising... And CO2 in the atmosphere has risen. Yes, it now, has. It's still a fraction of 1% in total. I get all of that, but, but there it weren't has many risen. cars in the Roman period when it was a lot hotter, and we know that for a fact. And there weren't many cars, and there weren't many coal power fire stations in um, you know in the medieval period in the roman period so what was what what was the problem there i mean it, dr i think it's otto weiss has been talking about cyclical solar um, patterns which show that it's absolutely nothing to do with co2 whatsoever the thing is i should be allowed to think that and it should be allowed to be debated. And it, physicists and scientists that believe that should be allowed to go on platforms but we or never go on see TV. Them. We, we never see them. Because you know why? Because the other, the other scientists' arguments would be absolutely torn apart by anyone who was not being paid off to say this absolute nonsense. So it's all a conspiracy? I don't think it's a conspiracy. No, I, there are a huge amount, as you said, of vested interests in this. And, you know, so I, I, a lot of them do believe it. But, but look at the things that are brought in, you know, surrounding um, the whole carbon stuff. You know, you, you, can have, um, you can only have a limited amount of this. You can only have a certain amount of meat, and then that will be better for your health. You yes, can only yes. travel a certain amount. Not too many cars. Might it, but there's a whole thing, isn't there, about having 10-minute radius of your house, so you can walk everywhere. So the powers that be decide what you need. So you see this, you see this as you're sceptical on the science. Yeah, I am. 
and this is the only place you'd be allowed to say it, and we allow you to but say it. But doesn't that make you worried that there's only one place that you're allowed to talk about it? Because well, if people I mean, are certain, why wouldn't they well, have to no, make it? No, I mean, the there were people that advocated the earth was flat, and they were wrong, but, 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 but you know, right, whether you're right or wrong, you should be allowed to put your point Fair of view. Fair enough. And yeah. that's the point Absolutely that I'm making. Right. I agree with and, you. Yeah. And I do tend personally towards some sympathy with the view that what we're doing, producing less than 1% of global CO2, is not necessarily you know, that big a factor in the world. But we can world. only do that because we're farming it out everywhere else. You know, we're bringing over wood pellets from America and, and to burning... To burn in drags. I know, I know, I know, I get it. China, we're getting that energy <clears throat> from them. We're but you not see fracking. This, but you see this really as being used as a means of control. They didn't want us to leave Europe. The world didn't want it. Well, certain, certain elements did not want us to leave Europe. They didn't want us to leave Europe because they didn't want us to have autonomy. If we're energy self-sufficient, we have autonomy. We're not dependent on anything else. We can make our own food. We can grow our own food. We've got our own energy. We can't be told what to do. This is a libertarian issue, whether you believe that CO2 is impacting on the okay. world or not. So tell me how disappointed you were in Kemi Badenoch because she was there that she was a week ago mm. and she was kind of saying that if we pursue the government's net zero target it'll be a self-inflicted economic wound uh, it makes no sense and we as a small country make a small country in terms of CO2 make no real difference then yeah. suddenly it all seemed to change didn't it well she's probably been offered a post in government on the basis that she re reverses it whoever she's decided to give her votes to Simple as that. She's, yeah. been, she's been bought off. Yeah, and she, you know, she's a young, beautiful, attractive, gorgeous, clever girl. And, you know, and why not? She's, she, I think she's All been right. bought off, yeah. What should the government do about these net zero targets? Are they they should scrap them. They're ridiculous. And they're, and they're actually human-hating. They're human-hating. Right, well, strong words there from Lois Perry. We thank you for coming <laughs> on and joining us on GB News. As I say, we are the only news channel in this country that will allow free and fair debate. Now, I'm pretty sure uh, that there are many that will take a very, very strongly opposing view of this. And I know there are lots of people concerned that we have hit record temperatures today and they will see a direct causal link. And I've, I've watched, I've listened to people on the programme say, oh, well, you've got to expect this. Every single summer is going to be like this in the future <coughs> because of rising CO2 levels. Well, clearly that's nonsense. But what I'm trying to do here is not just get both sides of a debate, but also talk about the practical issue of how do we get to a government target of 600,000 heat pumps being installed every year. It's currently running at 60,000 without vast amounts of government subsidy. Well, Tom Burke, CBE, Chairman and Founding Director um, of ERG Exports. Tom, you've been on this programme before. You and I have argued this point before. Um, we haven't always agreed, but that's fine. <laughs> that's OK. No, no, no. And, and the reason we had Lois on is we, we actually want to have a proper... Debate. I mean, her argument is, I put it to her, you know, it's 40.3 degrees centigrade in Coningsby, it's the hottest ever recorded day. Her argument is, well, yeah, well, that's only, records are so recent in terms of, 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 of when we go back to the medieval warm period or when the Romans were here. Um, and, that, and that what we're talking about here is a relatively short span of time. And I'd like your answer. 
Well, the, the, the record that we're looking at against which we're measuring this isn't short. It goes back over, I think, now something like hundreds of thousands of years. I can't remember the exact number. How can, we measure? What, How can we measure what the temperature well, there was? There are a whole lot of ways you can measure that. You measure it, for instance, by looking at the tree rings, by taking ice cores and looking at the concentrations of different isotopes and you, uh, in the, of gases. So mean temperatures you could measure or, or you, estimate? You, 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 can, you, can, you can get a very accurate assessment of what the temperature was for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, okay. Not yeah, not day by day, but but no, no, okay. but yeah. No, but fine. You, you can, but what's really <clears throat> important is you can see how and it, you know, it doesn't, it's not it's not a straight line, but how it sort of goes along, goes up and down, and then it shoots up right now. And that since actually that that's going back to about 1750 when the industrial revolution yeah. starts, and you can see as the gases grow, you can see how they. So now nobody's arguing in the scientific world about that at all. Tom, how is it when I was a kid, Blue Peter told me we were going, going into an ice age. Well, people make... And, and consensus was on the side of the ice age. <laughs> Nigel, I have to say, as you well know, people can say all kinds of things on but no, TV. The, but, but no, there no, was a scientific uh, consensus no, in the early uh, 70s. No, there wasn't. There was quite, some, quite a big one. There were some people who suspected we might be. And there was also, if you remember, a whole other thing about whether we were going into a nuclear winter because of this. So there are different things. Things happen and people yeah. try to understand them. And then they get swept up into the newspapers and into TV and people think that somebody's arrived at a conclusion. That's not the same as what's happened as we've had over the last 40 years when you have an enormous number of scientists doing an extremely uh, large amount of detailed work to check what's said because it's being... Being challenged well, all is, the time. What is for certain is over the last 40, 50 years, global temperatures have risen. That is beyond doubt. Nobody's arguing that. No one's arguing about that. Well, apart from lawyers, of course. <laughs> well, no, she wouldn't argue that. What she's arguing is that maybe CO2 is not the direct reason for that. And that's a different thing. You know, no one's arguing the temperatures haven't risen over this period of time. Her argument is that's a very, very short time frame in which to measure it against going back years and years and years. But, but Tom, I must just put this to you. What has happened in the last 48 hours here is absurd, completely absurd. Millions of Brits every year go to Spain, Portugal, Dubai, uh, Australia. They go to countries with temperatures well in excess of 40 degrees, um, and they all seem to come back home in re just about in one shape. The hysteria in the last two oh, days. Oh, I don't think there's hysteria. I think you know, the idea that somehow all of a sudden everybody you know, in the Met office has gone bananas because the temperature's gone up is a laughing. There are really serious dangers. We know from what happened in 2010 across Europe, we had a similar but not as intense yeah. event as this, that 30,000 people will die, uh, died then as a result of the increased heat. But 40 degrees, see, 104. Yeah. 104 Fahrenheit. It's yeah. a big temperature. No, we, 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 but it's dry heat. It's, it's not been humid. And I mean, yesterday was gorgeous. Yesterday was a lovely day. I loved <laughs> yesterday. I wish every day was like yesterday. It was nice. Today was hot, and I'll grant you that. But the fact we've had people work from home, don't travel unless essential, this is hysterical no, nonsense. No, it's not hysterical nonsense. It's people saying. How does Spain operate? Tell you what's really interesting about. Well, you're asking two questions. Let I me know. answer the I first know. one I before know. I try to <laughs> deal with the second one. <laughs> it's not hysterical. It's because people are really aware of the dangers. And as we've learnt from COVID, you know, you really do need to enlist the public when you've got real threats or to scared. people's well-being. Right. Well, well, 
Actually, I think you're underestimating the British public. I think the British public actually are pretty smart at getting it right when they're given good advice. And by and large, as the government found out, they want to do the right thing, irrespective of whether the government so, thinks it's so wrong. I drove, through, so I, I, I drove through South London yesterday afternoon. It was, it was like a ghost town. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a sensible thing to and do. And if you'd it? driven through bits of London today, you'd have seen that. You'd, have seen, you'd driven through fires. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, As we've had for th years and years and years. Not like fires. No, no. What was it? 130 fire engines have been called out to deal with the fires. Yeah, that no, no, we've moment. got a problem. We've got a real yeah, problem. 1976 was far worse, but we've got a no, problem. No, it wasn't far worse. That's not true. Well, of course it was. It no. went on for weeks and weeks uh, yes, and weeks and weeks. Yes, it did, but the temperature, the maximum and the temperature. Fires, and the fires were more widespread. But, well, the Tom, fires, you said, it went on for longer, Tom, so there were more fires. Tom. But actually, the temperature got never got within five degrees of what it was today. No, no. And I buy... Yeah, that's pretty much right. No, listen, yeah. we always have great debates on these subjects. It's very important we have you making these points. Final thought, if I can, on this. The government plan to install 600,000 yeah. heat pumps a year, yeah. it's running at 60,000. Yeah. It just isn't going to happen, is it? No, it is going to happen. Well, sorry, no, you're quite right. If the government carries on as it is, being as incompetent as it is, it isn't going to happen. You know what's really interesting about that and about heat pumps in particular? You can reverse them. So when it's cold, you use them to draw heat in. And when it's hot, you can use them to push heat out of your house. So it's really good for people to deal with exactly what we're going to get from climate change, which is these big variations in temperature. And so the government is really letting people down by failing to do what it's promised to do. Now, it's not only doing that on heat pumps. It's also doing that on insulating people's houses. 2010, we insulated... Does, does this all need government money, taxpayer money? Well, actually, heat pumps in particular, if what you do for heat pumps to install them is actually you that use public money to make money available to homeowners at the rate government can get it, then they'll pay that money back. What you can't do, you don't have to spend the money directly if you do it smartly. Now, as we've seen, you can do stupid things as government, you can do smart things. So I'm not guaranteeing you no. that the government will do the <laughs> No, the, I'm the sure smart of that. Things. Now, Tom, finally, am I allowed out of my house tomorrow? The temperature's down to about 30 yeah, well, tomorrow. The temperature's going down now. So I'm allowed out, <laughs> You're allowed out Oh, thank yeah. God for yeah. that. Tom Merkis, ever a very spirited debate. Well, that was a very spirited debate about net zero, about carbon emissions, about heat pumps and what the government should or should not be doing. And that's what you'll get here at GB News. Yes, you'll get presenters with opinions, but we will do our very best to give you both sides of an argument, of a debate, and say to you, you make your mind up. And that's a unique thing about GB News and why I'm pleased to be here and working here. Now, your thoughts on government net zero targets and their achievability. Pete says, no, they need to stop the green levy. Now, I'm afraid that there are no candidates left that I really think will drop the green levy. We'll see with Liz Truss. I mean, she has talked about cutting taxes of all kind. Maybe this green levy, and by which we're talking about, you know, a quarter added to our electricity bills. Environmental and social obligations is what it's called. Let's see if this comes back over the course of the next few weeks. Sean says, net zero is a waste of time and the targets have never been achievable. Let's go fracking, Sean. I couldn't agree more. We have to use gas. We have to use gas. It is the only sensible backup to wind energy. The more wind turbines you, you build, whether it's onshore or offshore, the more gas you need to back it up when the wind doesn't blow. So we may as well produce our own 
as import it from Qatar or Norway or Russia or anywhere else. Steve says the targets are achievable, but the price is bankrupting the public. Who on earth can afford to replace their boilers with heat pumps or replace their cars with electric ones, apart from the very wealthiest? Steve, I don't know what's wrong with you. You know, this government policy has been drawn up by people who live in Richmond in four million pound houses. Aren't you one of them? What's wrong with you? I know, it's, it's, it's just, it, it, it really is a detached, rich group of people making policy with no comprehension what a few extra thousand pounds means to ordinary folk. And one viewer says, we are British. We can achieve anything and lead the way. We did it with the Industrial Revolution. We can do it again. Well, I like the positivity there. I like the positivity about the fact this country can innovate, design, build and do things. The question is, is it the right thing to be doing? Now, the game of football, we talked earlier about rugby predominantly, but the game of football, it is... Distressing to see that Jack Charlton, Nobby Styles, both died with dementia. Bobby Charlton, Sir Bobby Charlton, has dementia. And it would seem that footballer after footballer, from that era, albeit of the 50s, 60s, 70s, are dying of or with dementia. And it's been put down very much to heading the ball. Now... Those who played football back in those times will tell you the ball was different, the ball was heavier, the ball carried water. Also, the game was different. If you look at a 1960s football match, the ball was hoofed aggressively from end to end. The ball spent a lot more time in the air than the modern, what I would call sort of Man City way of playing it along the ground, often a bit like rugby, passing back along a line before going forward. But there is deep concern over this. There is deep concern in rugby too about concussions leading to dementia and other problems and indeed one or two lawsuits perhaps on their way in rugby. So is this new move, this new idea that we should stop 12 year olds and under from heading the ball, is this the right and responsible thing to do or are we just taking it too far? Are we in danger of changing the game of football completely are we nannying far too much do we have to accept that with all sport there is a degree of risk well joining me is professor angus hunter uh, head of sports science and professor of neuromuscular physiology angus welcome to the program thank you nigel good evening good evening now this is a real debate isn't it because so many of these so many of these icons these stars, and, and it's happened to footballers, of course, from many, many lower divisions and far less fashionable players, but so many of that iconic 66 World Cup squad getting dementia. Uh, clearly the link between that and the heavy football, I mean, clearly it's there. Uh, so is it right to introduce no headers for 12s and under? Well, clearly we do have a, a duty as a society to safeguard our children. However, I do accept that um, we've also got a problem with obesity in children. Um, we need to get our children out and about. We need to get them exercising. So clearly we don't want to put our children off from playing football. Um, but it's about using the evidence we have at the moment. And certainly there was a study published 
a few years ago by University of Glasgow it showed that ex-professional footballers were three and a half times more likely to die of dementia. Now, we had also in our own laboratories, we, had we did a protocol actually heading the ball and we showed um, changes in the electrical pathways from the brain to the muscle. And we also showed impaired memory recall straight after. So clearly there is an effect when you do head the ball. Now, already there's been safeguards put in, in the amateur game to limit headers to um, 10. So either within the session or uh, throughout the week. Now, what we do know in children under that age of 12 is they have, they have a developing brain. If you take actual concussion, children take a lot longer to recover from a concussion than, say, an adult does. And while the research isn't quite there in terms of heading of football in children, I do think it's a pragmatic approach to protect them by um, removing this. But also, if you look at Scotland introduced this ban about two years ago, and admittedly we've had the pandemic, which means that we've not had that much football being played. But certainly all the coaches I've spoken to really sort of say that at that age, they don't do much heading anyway. Um, however, I do think it protects children if you do get a coach who wants to do a series of drills or a series of sessions to get a particular core skill better, that we know that they can't do that. Angus, what you say about 12-year-olds and under, uh, and, and albeit, you know, they may not head the ball many times, what you say about those young developing brains taking long, to, lo taking long to recover. That all sounds very logical to me. But really what I'm getting at here is you can make the argument that being punched in boxing is going to do some damage, that playing tight head prop in rugby clearly in a big scrum can't do you a power of good. Being hit by a cricket ball, even with a helmet on, uh, is going to cause you some damage. Are we? Is this the first step to effectively trying to change all the contact sports that people participate in on the grounds they're not very good for us? I don't think so, Nigel. No one's suggesting that um, we actually change the game itself. And you can also argue some of the most exciting parts of the game is the, the action of heading a ball into, into a goal mouth. Um, that's not... Mm necessarily. I don't think that's on the table. What's in our power is to use the science and use the technology to better protect our players, particularly in training. And I would argue a lot of the problems we're seeing today isn't necessarily so much of what happened on the field of play, it's more to do with what happened in training. We did a documentary a few years ago with Alan Shearer, and in that he actually said it would be commonplace for him to do yeah. 100 headers in one session. So we need to move beyond that. What I would like to see is already there's a large-scale project, big investment going on to this area and working with companies, looking at technology that we can start to develop to know what is a safe amount uh, of headers that a, a player can actually receive. So then we can get to the stage where we can fine-tune it more. At the moment, we're dealing with very blunt instruments. So I'm not advocating that we necessarily change the game itself. It's how can we make it safer for them. I have to say, 
Professor Hunter, I am normally one that says no to all things nanny state, but I think in terms of the way football players train and under-12s, for once, I have to say, I'm with you on this. I think you're right. I think it's just plain common sense, and I thank you for joining us on this show. Well, there you are. You know, I don't often say we should restrict anything. I'm generally a great believer in, you know, let it all hang out. Life is full of risk, but it does seem to me that such an alarming number of football players have got dementia that there needs to be a different approach. We just mustn't wreck the game. Now, a what the Farage moment, and a really alarming one. Our friends at Extinction Rebellion, virtually a death cult, arguing we're all going to die and, of course, saying that anything, anything they do justifies, the, justifies their goals of getting us living in caves. And the pictures you're looking at, for those watching this on television, this is News UK in London Bridge. This is the Rupert Murdoch headquarters in the United Kingdom. And it's where, of course, the Times are. It's where, of course, the Sun are. It's where, of course, a whole host of radio and TV uh, companies operate from under the Murdoch umbrella and the reason for Extinction Rebellion vandalising and cracking some of the windows of that building at 6.40am this morning and five people have been arrested, although goodness knows these days whether anybody ever gets charged for criminal damage and the reasoning that has been given by Extinction Rebellion. They're saying, tell the truth, explain what this terrible heat wave is all about rather than hiding it. Well, they may well be all illiterate, it seems to me, because today's front page of the sun is Britain is melting. Indeed, I think four of the last six days, the sun have talked about excess heat and temperature in this country. The idea, the idea that the Murdoch press are not paying any heed to this is nonsense. And actually, in many ways, the Sun newspaper uh, has really gone behind much of a net zero campaign about which I am deeply sceptical. But nothing steams to want to stop this cult. And it is a cult, a cult based on the idea we are all going to die if we keep driving motor cars. It is utterly ridiculous nonsense. So we've been talking about net zero. Passionate arguments saying that the government should stick with its net zero policy, but equally passionate arguments saying that we shouldn't. Only on GB News will you get both sides of any of these debates. I asked your views on is the government target of net zero? Is it achievable? Is it affordable? One viewer says affording net zero is irrelevant. We need net zero. It's pointless. Well, we don't need, sorry, we don't need net zero. It's pointless. Well, it's not pointless if you think that we're all going to burn to a crisp because of CO2, and many people do take that view. Stuart says, no, we can't afford the nonsense. Well, I think ordinary folk can't afford the nonsense. Something that Carrie Antoinette and the goldsmiths from Richmond probably didn't consider. Mike says, only by bankrupting the nation and killing most of the poor in the process. And, you know, we're talking about death 
The threat is death through 40-degree heat. Well, there'll be a lot more death if people can't heat their homes this winter, I can assure you. And Peter says, we should announce an alignment with big polluters, USA, China, India, etc. We will match their reduction in fossil fuels. Peter, I think that's quite sensible. Now, we talked last night about the improbability of Kemi Bad not getting through to the last two. Indeed, she hasn't made it through to the last three, but she's fought a very spirited campaign. I always think follow the money is important. What are the betting markets doing today? What's happened overnight? David Stevens, head of PR at Coral UK, joins me. David, good evening. Again, Nigel, great to speak to you. Now, I did confess last night that I'd put money on the Deem Sahawi and I got that completely wrong. And you as a bookmaker obviously looked upon me as being a very, very good, happy punter. But I have been saying for some time that I think Liz Truss, I think Liz Truss is going to make it through uh, into the last two. And, and I just can't see enough of those bad knock voters voting for Penny Morden. Um, what, what do the betting markets tell us today? Yeah, I signed off last night by saying my one sure bet was there'd be more twists and turns. And we got that latest twist <laughs> this afternoon. When I spoke to you last night, Rishi Sunak was odds on favourite. And I sort of cautioned, we referred back to, of course, to David Davis in the year. He was hot favourite. And of course, David Cameron beat yeah. him. And I said, it's, it's not over yet. And sure enough, this afternoon, as you say, no great surprise that Kemi Badenoch was eliminated. But the big surprise or the big change this afternoon was that Liz Truss has become the latest favourite. And I think a lot of that we've seen, I think we've probably fair to say we've seen some tactical voting that looks like it's going to freeze Penny Morgan yeah. out of the final two. Be a major surprise now if it's not Sunak versus Truss in the final two. But there's also a poll out this afternoon that suggested that Rishi Sunak would face Liz Truss in that final vote. Then it would be Liz Truss that came out on top. So she is now the even money favourite. It's worth just saying, as I say, Rishi Sunak, not only was he odds on 24 hours ago, but four or five days ago last week, Penny Morden was odds on. She's now out to seven to one. Yes, I mean, I, I, mean, I mean, David, that's the bizarre thing, as you say. A week ago, Penny Morden, pretty much odds on favourite. Mm. Last night, Rishi Sunak favourite. Now Liz Truss favourite. It is a, a very volatile market. And are many people betting on this? Yeah, it's one. This, for, for whatever reason, this is a, a Tory leadership election that has sort of captured the, the political punter's imagination. I guess because it's so <laughs> wide open, Nigel. I mean, that's the thing. I, I couldn't sit here now and tell you with any certainty who's going to win it. I think we've probably all agreed it's going to be Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak. But it's a market we as bookmakers yeah. love. You've just said it. We've had three different favourites in the, in the space of, what, four or five days. So... I, and you, you also referred earlier to the Andrea Leadsom year where it just took one bad spate of headlines, one bad day in, in the campaigning. And, and that's, that'll be the fear, obviously, for Liz Truss, for Rishi Sunak. As I say, looks like it won't be Penny Morden now. But I'm, I'm hoping, Nigel, I can cheer you up a little bit on the subject of, of Penny Badenoch. This wasn't her year, but, but we as bookmakers, we're like you. We've think that this is only the beginning for, for Miss Badenoch. It's not the yes. end of her political adventure yes. by any stretch. And she is just, and this, these are quite short odds that, that reflect how highly we rate her future. She's just five to one to be prime minister at some stage in the future. So her time wasn't Goodness now. Me. But yeah, well, <laughs> I think, you know, 
you've picked up that she's one for the, you know, you were hoping the future might be now, as a lot of people, I think, were. It hasn't come this time for her, but I think in the future, she, well, without doubt, she's going to be a name we hear plenty more of. And as I say, oh, five to one, but at some stage... No. David, she's a star of the future, and thank you for keeping us up to date with that betting market. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, we're going to go back to Wennington very, very briefly to see Joe Casper, our reporter, is down there. Um, Joe, what's the situation with the fires now down there? We've dropped him. He's gone. He's dropped out. He's dropped out. Never mind. I've got somebody in the studio with me. I've got Sam Ashworth Hayes, spectator columnist, director, uh, of course, of studies at the Henry Jackson Society, uh, budding conservative commentator <laughs> and writer, um, and you're becoming more prolific in your output. I, Sam, I, I have to say, I was, I fought tooth and nail against the Cameron Osborne government. I did my little bit, I think, in many ways, um, to terrify them, to get a referendum on the agenda. And I kind of thought and hoped, as millions did, that Brexit was going to be a new beginning in British politics. And that's what people wanted. It wasn't just about leaving the European Union. It was about, they're out of touch. This whole system needs to change. And with Boris, they had hope that some of that was going to happen. Kimmy Badenoch did represent something different. Yep. And you were supporting her, I believe. Yeah, with her out of the race, what are we left with? I mean, we're left with three absolutely terrible candidates for the most part. Uh, Rishi Sunak, who seems to believe there is no difference between the content of my wallet and the content of the Treasury's coffers. You have uh, Penny Mordaunt, who's busy backflipping all over her record on trans issues and frankly seems more suited to being a leader of the Labour Party than the Conservatives. Or <laughs> the Liberal Democrats. Or the Liberal Democrats, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you have Liz Truss. And, of course, um, Liz is better on policy than the other two, um, but you feel that she would struggle to win a general election and we have one coming up in two years. So there is a real dearth of talent at the top of the Conservative Party right now. And yet there are people in and around The Spectator magazine who you're writing for, People such as Lord Frost, who sat in that chair a few weeks ago, uh, senior figures in the ERG, people that I fought with alongside in the referendum and in the battles that came against Mrs May, advocating Liz Trust. So why are you so sceptical about her? I mean, I think she's definitely in the, 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 le the least bad of the current bunch, if that makes sense. She's the least bad? She's the least bad. Um, I'm not infused about her, but her policy instincts are quite good. She has a... Um, she does have a sort of right idea on taxation, on deregulation. I think she probably, despite having been on the same side of the referendum as me, I think she would probably not think to overturn it. Yep. Um, so I think she's, you know, of, of the current candidates, she's probably best suited. Rishi Sunak is far too heavy on taxation for my liking. And of course, we covered the uh, penny. Um, but the, you know, the, the interesting thing is whether or not she gets onto the final ballot, because right now there's a real suggestion that uh, what will happen is Rishi Sunak will lend her some of her, their, sorry, lend yep. her some of his MPs to make sure that uh, Penny gets onto the ballot and it's a run-up between those two rather than Liz Truss. So Rishi would rather face Penny Morden than face Liz Truss, you think? They, there has been some suggestion to that effect, yeah. Um, and because obviously Liz is coming further from the right of the party and would sort of bring some more of those uh, votes for membership. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 it's bewildering to most people watching and listening to this now. And I've no doubt there are jobs being offered and deals being done behind the scene. 
My concern about all of this, Sam, and regardless whether they're on the left or the right of the party, is I think the country needs reform in lots and lots of ways. Economic reform, social reform, electoral reform. You know, I am a great reformer. Um, and I don't see any of those three offering any reform of any kind whatsoever. And I just feel that economically, unless we have some changes, we're in a bad place. And you've written, I mean, you are pretty pessimistic about the UK economy, aren't you? I'm, so I'm, I'm optimistic about the UK's potential. I'm pessimistic about the ability of people in Westminster to unlock that. Um, you look at the last 15 years of economic performance, GDP per capita in real terms, so this is you know, the, the figure that actually matters, yes. the amount of wealth per person, per person. has grown at 0.6% a year, which is diabolically bad. Um, if you project these growth rates out another 12 years or so, Poland overtakes us. Now, that's not necessarily saying that's going to happen, but it's an illustration of just how badly we are doing. And you look at but these... But I thought these massive numbers of people coming into the country every year with huge migration was increasing our GDP. It'll increase your... It'll most increase your overall GDP, but it won't increase the per capita figure, which is obviously what matters to those of us here. Um, so you, you, you look at these candidates, though, and none of them are sitting there saying, I have a plan to fix this abysmal record on productivity. Mm. I have a plan to address the fact that wages today in, in real terms are about the same as they were in 2007 or even slightly lower. Um, and no one is talking seriously about planning reform. The only candidate who did, Sajid Javid, uh, got kicked out very early on. And that's housing, basically. That's housing. Well, it's, it's housing, but it's also R&D and infrastructure and all of these things which are so important to economic growth. Um, if you want to start a business, you need, you need to be able to have an office for it. And so if you look at lab space, um, the UK does incredibly well in, in high technology, right? Yep. We've got Oxford, we've got Cambridge, we've got... Yeah, Ontario. some clever people, good inventors. Exactly. Yep. How much lab space is available in London right now? It's around 90,000 square feet. You go off to Boston, Massachusetts, that figure's in the millions. Of no, of course, of so, course, of course. So basically, Sam, one of these three becomes Prime Minister, yep. nothing changes whatsoever, <laughs> and they crash the defeat at the next election. Pretty much. I think he's right. Sam Ashworth Hayes, thank you very much thank indeed you. for joining us this evening here on GB News. And we are now going to go live to Wellington, where this horrid fire took place earlier on today uh, and where it, there appears to have been great damage to houses. Uh, GB News' Joe Casper is there. Joe. Hi, Nigel. Yes, I'm in Wellington, East London. I'm just outside the local hotel where people have been coming in, in and out all day. They're still coming in because people are coming home discovering that their houses, they can't get into them, um, including one of those is a local resident, uh, Dave Biles. Um, he's been evacuated from his house. Dave, t tell me what happened today. Well, it was about 12 o'clock and I looked out of the back garden and I could see smoke bellowing up towards Kempview, which is uh, east of the village. And my mate was with me, you know, he came round and he said, look at it, I said, it's getting bad. And he went. And all of a sudden, the wind, well, we had a wind, and it just, the, the smoke just moved along the village, and obviously everything caught light. The church has been destroyed, I understand. Um, Kent View, the houses built in the 50s, quite a number of them have been destroyed. I live at One Marine Cottages, the old village post office, which is a landmark. Luckily, I think I've been in the middle of it, and having said that, next door but one, they've caught a light, about three or four, maybe six, seven, eight cottages all built in the 1800s and um, 
Oh, such a shock. All of a sudden the police were knocking at doors, evacuate, evacuate. I was one of the last out of our group to evacuate because I had to shut everything down. Took smoking, I want to see the ambulance in a minute, get myself checked, you know, but the whole thing is just a night, it's just something you, you don't think will ever happen. It's just something you see on TV, films maybe, but it's horrendous. Such a lovely village, you know, destroyed people's houses. But luckily, as far as I know, no fatalities, which is the most important thing. Absolutely, and you've just registered, registered here, so it's still quite early and probably still a bit of a shock and raw for yeah, you at the moment. Yeah. But, but what happens next? Have you got anywhere to stay? Yes, I'm going to stay with relations. Having said that, I'll be, sure, I'll be checking my insurance documents. Mm. If I'm covered for hotel accommodation, I will take that on, as I don't want to um, put my family out, you know. Uh, sorry, I'm a little bit... You know, I've got over the shock of the anger. The anger's gone now and it's just like, oh, crap, you know, this is devastating, mm -hmm. devastating. We've been here 27 years, most of the people along there, you know, you, you make your home what it is, you know, and that's where you think you're going to be the rest of your life. And for something like this, devastating, absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very okay. much for that. I hope, I hope you're OK. And ju just to tell you, Nigel, when, when we got here, my eyes are hurting from, from the smoke. It's still so powerful. We're about a mile away. And also my throat, it's, it's dried up so quickly. There's a, there's a big difference between going inside and outside. It's, it, it must be quite devastating for the residents here. Absolutely, Joe. Great reporting. Thank you very much indeed. That was GB News' Joe Casper down at Weddington. And I thought, must say, that interview uh, with resident Dave Biles, who's been burnt out, it looks like, or he may have got away with it. But it is a bit of a shock because we're used to grass fires. They're common. Uh, we're used to seeing on the telly, as Dave said, and we see what happens in Greece. So we see what happens sometimes in the West Coast of America, where we see horrible fires that engulf and destroy homes. I can't remember ever seeing that happen in this country. And indeed, a former fire chief said it just doesn't happen in Britain when it's happened in Wellington. So it is, I think, a bit of a shock. It looks like it must have been a lovely village. Uh, goodness gracious me, there's a lot, a lot of rebuilding to do. Well, thanks for joining me over the course of these two hours. I hope you feel we've had a very spirited debate around climate change. Uh, but a lot of us on the conservative side of life, uh, not happy about the prospects of the party, this contest or the next general election.